Well, hey, uh, like Trace mentioned, man, it is an exciting morning, and I don't know about you, but I feel like we've been to church like two and a half times and back already, um, but it is, it is good, good to be here, and this morning is all about celebrating what it means to be a church that is for the next generation, right? But I wanna read you a quote by a guy named William Bennett. He was the United States Secretary of Education a while ago, and, and he says, this is a little clip from an article I read recently, for a civilization to succeed, the family must succeed, and right now, it's not. And, and look, there's a lot of data, and we're kind of jumping right in this morning, forewarning. We'll get to some other things in a minute, but there's enough data that suggests that family intactness not only produces, typically, it's not the only way, healthier individuals and also leads to a healthier society, right? And, and we also understand this because we believe as Christ followers that God is the original designer and architect of the family, right? We see in Genesis one, he creates Adam and Eve, and then he gives them the simple task, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And so God has designed the family to also work in a particular way, right? And I say all this because we really do have to understand the importance of being for the next generation. Because just as God designed the family to work, he has also designed the church to work in a particular way. And the vision for that is to raise up the next generation so that no son or daughter would go without a spiritual parent. And to raise up the next generation is going to require all of us, right? Jesus said, count the cost of a tower before you decide to build. We should count the cost of what it means to really be for the next generation because it's gonna require a whole lot more than just giving it one Sunday and saying, hey, we're for the generation. We had a sermon on it one time from that guy whose name I can't remember, right? But it will require not just some of us, but also all of us, right? And, and as far as I'm concerned, there's really two kinds of people in this room. There are those of you in here who are the next generation, right? And really just as Nadine mentioned, our teenagers, our students are in here while our kids have their own unique worship experience, but it will require you guys and, and you guys have to begin to prepare to lead the church, to lead the body of Christ. But then it will also require the rest of us to join in in preparing them to one day lead us. And so, what I'd like to do this uh, morning is, is we're gonna look at this transition of leadership amongst the Israelites whenever it transitioned from Moses to Joshua, right? And, and we'll kind of skip around uh, there, that last little chunk of Deuteronomy, this sort of transition of power really unfolds in chapters 31 through 34. We'll even sneak into the book of Joshua to uh, take a look at his early years of leading. So where we're at in Deuteronomy 31, is that Moses is old, and he basically says, I wanna die, I don't want to lead you anymore. Okay, I don't know if he says, I don't want to lead you, right? But he was, they were hard people to leave, right? The Israelites rebelled and rebelled often, and so he's telling Joshua that it is now time for you to take charge, for you to be the leader of these people. And, and look, I think you, we're gonna talk Joshua for a minute, and I just want you to know that, yes, I'm talking to you guys, but the day that we stop becoming a Joshua, the day that we stop being poured into is also the day that we will fail to be a Moses. And so really, if we wanna be a Moses, if we wanna pour in, then we also have to have the disposition of being filled as well. But in thinking about Joshua 
it made me think about being a teenager, right? And I spent a lot of time with, with you who, I don't recognize a lot of you though. Are y'all new? <laughs> but those of you, the older ones at the back, I see you, right? But I spent a lot of time as a student pastor and even being a teenager, right? I remember this feeling of such sort of dualism, right? Really had a dualistic nature to the teenage years. What do I mean by that? In one way, it's really exciting because you guys got your whole life ahead of you. You can be whoever you want. You can go wherever you want, right? You don't know what you're going to be doing and there's great adventure and excitement in that, right? The world and all her endless options are right under your nose. But on the flip side of that, it can be like kind of terrifying, right? Right? The unknowns can also be deliberating. But, but here's the thing. Here's what I want you guys to know and want you guys to understand is that God is far more interested in who you are becoming than what you are preparing to do, okay? God cares a lot, lot more about the condition of our heart than our GPA, our SAT score, our stats, our performance, whatever it is that we produce. God is less interested in your production than who it is that you are being formed into being, right? Now, parents, I gotta ask you the stingy question. Do you care more about the condition of your students' hearts than their output, right? If we're gonna be a church that is for raising up the next generation, then I believe key to that is we have to give our students permission to value more who they are in God than what they are able to do. And so the logical question is, okay, what does it mean then to orient my life around becoming who God wants me to be? You look at verse six in Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord, your God, is with you. He will never leave you. He will not forsake you. Look, seven times, seven times in this transition of leadership, Joshua and the Israelites are told, be strong and be courageous, right? And so strength and courage, right? These are things that we know come from understanding and believing what the latter part of that verse says, that the Lord goes with you, he will never leave you nor forsake you. So you wanna live your life in a way that you value more who you are becoming in the image of God than know and understand that you have strength and you have courage, but you have it because you know the one who holds the entire world in the palm of his hand. And he has said, I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to also go ahead of you. And I promise, I promise to always be with you, right? And if we understand who God really is, and we understand this promise, that will drastically change your life. And I do believe no matter who you are, you will have strength and you will have courage any and everywhere that your foot steps because you believe in the one who holds you in the palm of their hand. But here's the thing. I think that we as the church, we, we do a pretty good job of, of empowering and equipping and reminding our next generations and really all of us what it means to be strong and what it means to be courageous, right? who we are. But what I fear and what I particularly feel burdened about this morning, and I say this from the perspective of having spent a long time in next generation ministries, I don't know if we always prepare you guys 
as well for the times when you don't feel strong and you don't feel courageous. Because the reality is, the world ain't gonna go easy on you guys, okay? As the musical Annie taught us, or honestly for me, Jay-Z taught us, is that <laughs> it, it can be a hard knock life. Instead of treated, we get tricked. Instead of kisses, we get kicked. I wish you guys could have heard me say the Jay-Z part in the earlier service. They were like, who? Was that a, someone else who produced the musical? <laughs> um, but I say all that because honestly, and, and plenty of you have already been there, but there will be days where you feel tricked and you feel kicked by the world, right? There will be a point in your life where your strength feels more like weakness and your courage feels more like being a coward. And at that point, it will be tempting to wonder if maybe, maybe God just slipped out the back door of your life. It happened to Joshua, right? Now Joshua's reign as a leader, it starts off excellent, okay? They go to Jericho, you remember, they march around the walls seven times, the walls falls, they go in there, they wreck shop, get an easy W, and they're moving on to AI, okay? In fact, what's crazy is in Joshua uh, 6.27, it even says that Joshua's fame was starting to spread. This was such an impressive victory that Joshua was starting to get some notability about his great warrior leadership-like tendencies. And so then they go to AI, okay? Joshua's intel says, AI, pretty small little city. We should be fine. In fact, don't even send that many men. Maybe just a small battalion. We'll be done with AI in no time. We got this in the bag. Read what happens in Joshua 7. So about 3,000 went up. but They were routed by the men of AI, who killed about 36 of them, they chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and it became like water. And so from triumph to tragedy, and suddenly for Joshua, this idea of being strong and courageous evaporated in a second. And where do we find this young bold, up-and-coming leader of God's people, face down in the dirt on the outskirts of AI in defeat. And the older I get, I really do think, in a lot of ways, so much of faith boils down to those moments spent in the outskirts of AI. Because the reality is, especially for you guys, for a lot of you, there will be moments, there will be days, seasons, weeks, where you toss and turn in a dorm bed or barracks or in some cheap, nasty apartment, wondering, where is God? Where's the God of Jericho? Where's the God of Serve Dallas? Where's the God of camp? Where's the God of VBS? Where's the God that I knew when I was a teenager? Because it seems like that God has left the building. Where is that God? And you might even begin to entertain 
the idea and plenty of your friends will give in to this idea that maybe, maybe God did break his promise. Maybe he, maybe he did forsake me. Maybe he did leave me or maybe it wasn't even real. Maybe I was just young and naive and there's no God. And so how do we prepare you and prepare all of us for those moments spent outside of AI and defeat? There's this little phrase in scripture called wait on the Lord. And we see this throughout the Psalms and in some other places. And if there's one person in scripture, at least for me, that really knew how to navigate the moments of AI and how to wait on the Lord, it's David. And in Psalm 42, David is literally writing what arguably might be the most depressing, dark, Psalm. It's also one of my favorites, which my wife would say makes perfect sense because all the music I like is sad. I don't know what that means. But in this 42nd Psalm, David says he is lost. He is overwhelmed. He is confused. He even says that his tears have been his food, wondering, questioning, sort of in an internal debate with, him, with his own self, why is my soul so downcast? And yet, Notice his response. He preaches hope to himself. Psalm 42, five. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my savior, my God. So we put your hope in God. I know I am downcast. I know I'm beaten up. I know there is darkness, but I will put my hope in God. I know I have been to places that I could have never imagined going to. I've done things that I never thought I would do, but I will put my hope in God. Why is my soul downcast? Why do I feel this way? Why is there this heaviness on me? I will put my hope in God. I will put my hope in God. Because when you wait on the Lord, you have to preach hope to yourself. You have to preach the gospel to yourself. You have to remind yourself that if you're going to entertain the voices that say that my soul is downcast and that I'm lost and I'm broken, you also have to let in the voice of truth that is the voice of the gospel. Put your hope in God. And the other thing that we do while we wait on the Lord is we position ourselves under the waterfall of grace. And God knows God knows that for the next 30, 40, 50 years, you will not walk in perfect submission, okay? And that's okay. You don't have to be perfect. Jesus did that for you. But each day, each day is an opportunity for you to wake up to new, fresh mercies straight from God. And it is never, it is never. And I've been thinking about this a lot, particularly with you guys. And if there's one thing that I, I hope that when we promote you to wherever you go to school or whenever you're a senior, that you remember, it's that you are never, ever, ever too far gone, too far away, too far lost, too far broken to take one step in the direction of obedience towards the cross. And you only have to take one step and then take another step and then take another step. But there's nothing that you can do to be too far gone. And, and for some of you, maybe that reality of 
you're not too broken. You're not too far. You're not in too dark of a place. It's, it's kind of the first time you've, you've heard or maybe just something's happening in you. Well, look, the reality is there is, there is a king with a kingdom and his name is Jesus. And the way that he established this kingdom is that he went and he laid down his life. He conquered the grave and therefore restored relationship with you. And since he went all the way to the grave, it means that you also can go all the way to the grave of darkness in this world and still not be too far gone. And if that's the first time you're hearing that, man, we would, we would love to have a conversation with you when we dismiss. I wish I could say we're about to dismiss, but we're not. Um, but you can still go back there now or whenever. And then ultimately, Psalm 27, 14 says that we wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So when we wait for the Lord, we sit in our identity. We don't sit in our past. We don't sit in our shame, but we sit in our identity, which there, be strong and take heart. The Lord has got you. And eventually, eventually we hear the words that Joshua heard. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? And so while we wait for the Lord in AI, we can also look a little bit further down the road. We can look to some people who are maybe a little bit more familiar with the terrain around AI. We can look to those with a little bit, maybe less tread on the tires. And, and when you look to those people, you won't find anyone that's any less broken, right? You won't find perfection, but I do think you will find some folks who are willing to come alongside you and help you navigate the unfamiliar ways of life on the outskirts of AI. And so for those of us that have been called to prepare the next generation, how do we prepare them? How do we prepare them for both Jericho and also AI? We look at Deuteronomy 32, 44 through 47 and read the words that Moses spoke over Joshua. Moses came with Joshua, son of Nun, and spoke all the words of his song in the hearing of the people. When Moses finished reciting all these words to all of Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of the law. They are not just idle words for you, they are your life, by them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So, Real quick, I think there's three things. There's three things that we can observe that Moses did to prepare Joshua. And we too can do those things to also prepare the next generation. And the first one, what we just read in verse 46, take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day. And the first step, the first step in preparing the next generation is really has nothing to do with the next generation. It has to do with you. It has to do with preparing your own heart, taking to heart the words of the Lord. And you see, the, the, the tricky thing is, a lot of us do a pretty good job of taking the words of God to our head. And when they're in our head, we know the right answers. We know what to say, when to say. In fact, in our head, we're pretty good at playing church. But that's what we're doing. We're just playing church. But then, if we allow those words to move from our head and into our heart, 
and to sink deeply and anchor into our soul, then we will begin to see our lives transformed and reoriented in a way in which gospel transformation is evident in everything that we do. And I promise you, what these guys wanna see and girls wanna see, they don't, they don't really particularly care if you have all the right answers, but they wanna see faith transforming you because they will move towards that. They are attracted towards that. This crew isn't gonna go to church anymore for social, cultural reasons. They're gonna go to church if they believe that they can encounter God and if they see other people encountering God. Period, case closed, I promise. Am I right? Yeah, you kind of have to say yes. That would be awkward if you didn't. So thank you. Thank you. But finally, faith and discipleship can and will never fall under the category, do as I say and not as I do, right? That just can't work. We have to model for them what a faith that involves taking to heart the words of the Lord, not just taking to mind. And the second thing is, the latter part of verse 46, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. Command our children to obey the words of God. Now we have a ton of great next, gener next generation leaders in this church, okay? And I mean like frontline next generation leaders. They serve on Sundays and at big events with them and, and on Wednesday nights. And when I uh, had the privilege of being student pastor here, I would often find myself in, the, in a similar conversation particularly around sort of recruiting time. And basically the conversation would look something like, you know, I would really like to serve in the student ministry, but I'm just kind of worried that, you know, maybe I'm too old. They might not think I'm cool enough or I might not be relatable and, and I just don't really know. And then typically if, if there was really a calling, they would still sort of sheepishly make their way down to the brick. And then I would do my best to, to follow up with them a couple weeks later and just ask, hey, how's it going? You know, how's it going in your new class, being a student ministry leader? And I kid you not, a lot of the time, they would say, honestly, it's, it's not going well at all. I can't connect. I, I, don't, uh, I don't feel like they like me. I can't relate to them. They definitely don't think I'm cool. Whenever I reach out to them or text them in, in our little small group group chat and say, how can I pray for you? Literally, radio silence, none of them ever respond. And it's just kind of really awkward. Y'all do that, that's mean. They have, we have feelings too. Jeez, text back. And then some amount of season would pass. And honestly, sometimes, I really mean, I've talked to leaders who this is a multi-year process. But some amount of time would pass, and then my favorite thing would happen. With this look of enthusiasm and excitement, they would come up to me and say something along the lines of, you'll never guess what happened. I was at the grocery store, I was at Home Depot, and I ran into such and such student who sits in my small group, and this is like the girl, the guy who like never says anything to me. I swore <clears throat> that she absolutely... Wow. <clears throat> All right. Brian's getting on deck. He's like, I might have to go finish this thing if he passes out. I see him in the batter circle over there. But. <laughs> so. But this conversation, I'm serious, this would happen. And they would say, I just can't believe this. I can't believe that they reached out to me, that they, that they texted me, that, 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 they, that they want me to pray for them. And I mean, literally, they have never spoken a word to me. But suddenly now, what was that brick wall? 
now seems to be crumbling down and there's an opportunity for me to invest and disciple them. And I say all that because I promise you, if teaching kids, teaching students, teaching the next generation to be obedient to Jesus is not about having all the right answers. It's not about being cool. It's not about being relatable. It's about showing up. It's about a ministry of presence and being consistent. It's just showing up and being faithful to be there because you never know when one of these kiddos will be on the outskirts of AI and they'll be scrolling through their phone wondering, who can I talk to? Who can pray for me? And they'll see your name and they'll think, I know she always says, he always says that I'm there for you and if you ever need to talk. And guess what? Now I need to talk. And they will reach out. And here's the other thing. We have to understand <clears throat> that institutions don't make disciples, right? Institutions, goodness. Institutions are really good at passing down information, right? And there's, there's a place for that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's gonna have to be individuals who keep their hand to the plow and remain obedient and steadfast. And individuals make disciples, not institutions. <clears throat> I do not know what happened to my throat. <clears throat> All right, so this will help because I, I really like this story. So um, the other day, Brian and I went to lunch, okay? And he knows that I'm gonna share this. He's cool like that and said I could. But Brian is what you would say maybe a little bit directionally challenged, okay? And so we're here at the church. And we're going to In-N-Out in Plano. I think we have a map, okay? <laughs> I kid you not. He like almost got lost. I had to tell him like where to exit the highway. I'm like, you exit by the big yellow arrow thing. It's right there. But I, I say that, I'm, uh, I'm terrible with directions too. But you know who's not bad with directions? Taxi drivers, right? And you might remember this, or at least some of you uh, adults in the room, that about 10 years ago, there was this article that came out in, in some universities in London had actually studied the mind of taxi drivers. And they found that their brains were, were literally bigger. And the part of the brain that helps sort of download a map, spatial intelligence, actually was a larger size and taxi drivers. And it makes sense because to be a taxi driver, you have to know all the shortcuts, you have to know how to get from one place to another, what areas of town to avoid at certain times a day, and it is not an easy thing to do. But here's where reality comes crashing in. I feel like as we get older, the temptation is to be a taxi driver in the kingdom of God, right? We've got the spiritual map memorized, we know all the shortcuts of faith, and ultimately, nothing really surprises us anymore. And the very faith that was once the fuel for our life is now nothing more than an idling engine and the background of our day-to-day -day routines. And look, this isn't the only reason, but I really do believe that one of the big reasons that so many young people walk away from the church is because they look to generation after generation after generation that has grown stale and idle in their faith. And they don't wanna waste their time with that. They are not inspired or drawn to a lifeless idol 
faith. Now, you guys can't blame everything on them. Okay, you're gonna grow up and have to stop blaming people, right? Y'all get me on that? It's not all their fault. But I really do believe, I really do believe the next generation is gonna be drawn towards people, towards men and women, no matter how old they are, who are continually being transformed by the gospel until the day they go to be with Jesus face to face. That's what they want to see. That is what they are drawn to. It's what we are all drawn to. And so as we close out, Jesus gives us a really simple picture of what a church that is for the next generation looks like. You read in Mark 9, 37, Jesus says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Welcome the next generation, then we welcome the presence of God. And I don't think many people in this room would say that they do not desire to see this place, to see this church saturated with the spirit of God. And yet Jesus in his such simple ways says, welcome the next generation and there I will be. Welcome the next generation and welcome my presence. And if we do this, right, if we agree to be a church that takes seriously being for the next generation, then I really do believe that we can rest comfortably in knowing that our church will be filled with the presence of God and will be functioning in the way that God originally designed the church to function. And if we do this, if we become a church that is really for the next generation, then rest assured, they will come and more and more and more of them will come and our best days will still be ahead of us. Our best days as a church will be further and further and further down the road because we invest further and further down the road into the next generation. And so they wanna see people who experience fresh encounters with Jesus. They wanna see people who are transformed because they take not just the words of God to their head, but to their heart and they live forth from there. They wanna see men and women who don't idle in their faith, but get faster and faster and ramp up those RPMs and end up that the day that they go to be with the Lord was the day that they were the most in love with Jesus. That's the kind of people that they want to see. And if we as a church, if we show them that, if we commit to being that, they're gonna come and they're gonna come hungry and they're gonna come ready to bring revival to their generation. Let's pray. Father, we, we love you. And we love that you have a heart for the next generation. We love that, that you have a heart to see a communal effort come alongside raising these teenagers and these kiddos and these preschoolers in your name. And so Father, we know from, from looking at Joshua and Moses that so much of what it means to be a church for the next generation is to not grow idle and stale in our faith. And so I pray that for every single one of us, that we would continue to see the flame, the passion that is life with you get hotter and hotter every single day. And Father, we do just wanna pray a blessing of protection over these kids, Lord, especially those that are going back into schools, Lord, we know that 
not only is there just so much craziness and uncertainty out there in the world, but there is also evil that lurks at every corner trying to pull these students, trying to pull these kids in all different directions, Lord. And so, Father, like we sung, I pray that they would find firm foundation here in your presence throughout the school year. We love you and praise your name. Amen.